everybody, welcome to NTWC Live. It's a different look today. We actually are live and in person. We are, and we're at the beautiful Tremont House Hotel in downtown Galveston, Texas. And we're here today just so we can bring you up to speed on what this hurricane season's been like, what we've experienced this year, and maybe talk a little bit about some of the messaging and a lot of great things. Of course, Hurricane Hal is here, Bill Reed is here. Two guests today, Dan Riley is with us, and also in a little bit, Jonathan Brazel will be with us as well to talk about all of these things. So I think we've got a great show lined up for you. If you're watching us online, you can't ask questions because we're recording this ahead of time before it actually airs. Uh, but those who are here in the studio audience can ask questions today. So let's get started. Let's get over to Hal Needham and Bill Reed. Guys? We thought it'd be useful to start reviewing the season that we just had. We're, we're coming up to the end of October. Uh, while there is still a month in the season uh, to go, uh, it's pretty much near the end and not much activity is expected in the remainder. Uh, the season didn't quite go as expected. We started out with some activity typical of early season tropical storms, uh, three of them as a matter of fact, and then early July all went quiet until September where we were very active. Uh, we've had 11 named storms, five hurricanes, two of which were category three or higher, uh, and they were both impactful. We had Fiona, uh, which set record pressures for, for low pressure readings for Canada when it went into Atlantic Canada as a post-tropical storm. And of course, uh, Ian that uh, made that uh, long-feared major landfall on the southwest coast of uh, Florida. Uh, usually what uh, we do at the end of the year is uh, start analyzing all the uh, data from the storms. Uh, people do studies on uh, where landfall was to pick up a lot of information on what worked and what didn't as far as the messaging. And I think that's the route the three of us want to take today uh, uh, when we look back at the season. Uh, uh, Dan Riley, who is with us uh, uh, from the Houston-Galveston area uh, weather forecast office of the National Weather Service, where he's been the morning coordination meteorologist since 2008. Yes, it's Bill. Yeah, he, he, yeah. it's his fault that you had Ike here. <laughs> we always say that. Uh, so, Dan, what's some of your initial thoughts on this season? Honestly, Bill, uh, Ian reminded me a bit of Ike uh, in the fact that there was some uncertainty in the center track, but there were dangerous impacts evident either way. And it seemed like some of the uh, uh, people in Florida were more focused on the, the uncertainty in the track rather than uh, really understanding you know, the tremendous surge threat near and to the right of the track. Uh, so that's kind of my initial impression is sort of some deja vu uh, from what we dealt with with Ike back in 2008. Yeah, I, I, did, did it surprise you in the fact that uh, 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 just 18 years earlier Hurricane Charlie followed the same track and they had the exact same uh, problem of focusing on a forecast skinny black line that didn't quite get followed at the end? Exactly, and, and Charlie was a much different storm, and so that's another thing that I've seen with a lot of these events is people think of storms that they've experienced firsthand, and so they might have been thinking of a Charlie-like storm that didn't have a lot of surge, uh, you know, both deadly storms, Category 4, uh, so, but, but then again, there's probably been a lot of uh, turnover there, you know, I, I imagine many people weren't there for Charlie, so... Um, but that is a messaging challenge, is when a storm is different than one that people have experienced before. Yeah, Charlie didn't produce much of a surge, and it was in a very small area. I think the radius of max winds were only about uh, seven nautical miles, so there's just a, almost like a giant tornado going in there, uh, rather than a big, big full-blown hurricane as far as the scale of it. 
and yeah, that could have been a, a big part of the problem is that the people that had been there and uh, weathered Charlie without any repercussions thought they would just do the same. And we've seen it with Harvey here and Ike. Uh, you know, if people hadn't flooded uh, in the years immediate to Harvey, maybe they didn't understand the threat uh, as much as people that had flooded. So, uh, and even with the winter event, uh, we, we, we had uh, very strong wording for that extreme cold. Talked about potential utility failure with water and power and the danger and to take it seriously. Uh, and yet a lot of people hadn't had a winter storm like that and none of us had a, a utility failure like that. So it's hard for people to kind of envision what the storm is gonna be like. You can say 40 inches of rain, catastrophic flooding, but if they hadn't, haven't seen that themselves, uh, sometimes it just doesn't register. Yeah, I hear a lot of people say that the, the problem with messaging these natural disasters is the inability to personalize it. In, in hindcast, you can see what happened and you can dream up ways of doing it, but I don't think, at the time of the forecast, uh, I don't think you could do that very well. Uh, I, I agree. People, people personalizing the message for them. You know, they may think, oh yeah, someone's gonna get flooding and a lot of rain. Uh, maybe Houston again, you know, but, uh, but not necessarily their neighborhood. You know, what, is it gonna affect my neighborhood, my street, my house? Now, Hal, you were over there. Did you get any uh, uh, sense for what people were thinking was, was coming towards them as the, the landfall approached? You, you know, know, I, I was, was shocked. shocked. I showed up the day before landfall in the major impact zone, and it seemed to me that people were very flat-footed, not prepared, and almost defiant. I've lived here my whole life. I'm, I'm going to be fine. Uh, I'm not even open to really listening about that this storm's different than the other ones. So yeah, I was very surprised. It seemed very different to me than a storm of maybe a similar magnitude that would approach the upper Texas coast or south Louisiana, where I think people have maybe some more experiences with these impacts. Yeah, I was surprised. When I went to the Hurricane Center, the uh, evacuations were one of the biggest things on my mind because I just had Rita uh, and, the, and the almost botched evacuation. So many people left that didn't. We had like a 90% compliance with the orders. It's the first time they ever had mandatory orders. And I thought that's just the way it worked. But I got educated real quick that in Florida, they're lucky to get 50% compliance. I don't know if that's still uh, the case. Uh, and the demographics are very different. It's a, a much older population. And I think, uh, I think I read where the housing stock over there is something close to 70% of it is pre post Andrew building codes which is not good seeing what happened in, the, in Andrew with the older building codes. That's interesting and I know a lot of seniors were victims with Sandy, you know, so that seems to be a, a group that sometimes for whatever reason decides not to leave. I mean, I'm not inclined to leave, but I'm on 30 feet elevation, so I don't have a storm surge issue there. Uh, uh, and being in that demographic age-wise, I can relate to it a lot more. Uh, I think a lot of it in the Fort Myers area, from what I could gather, is there's a, a fairly large chunk of people who are fixed income, retired, bought their houses when they were uh, affordable at the middle class level, but don't have a whole lot of spare income. So evacuations becomes an economic issue to them also. Right, right. And, you know, Hal mentioned the defiance almost uh, that he saw from some folks there. Uh, is that what you're saying, Hal? And uh, even with we saw a little bit of that with ike here uh not understanding what a category two 
you know, meant. You know, I'm from Galveston, I know hurricanes. Uh, category two doesn't sound that bad, you know. And, and, and so our challenge was with a very large hurricane, you know, the cat category didn't describe the surge threat. So we were trying to message that very strongly in our wording. Um, but I remember some elements of that even uh, with Ike. Dan, what's the possible influence of back-to-back -back storms? When I say back-to-back, -back, I mean, say, within five years. For example, with Rita, a lot of, there was a high compliance on evacuation. Many people perceive that as an unnecessary evacuation. Three years later, here comes Ike. For sure, when I was in Hurricane Ian in southwest Florida, I talked to a lot of people who said, we evacuated for Irma. We complied five years ago with that evacuation, and nothing happened. And I, I feel like that maybe led to a lot of these people not evacuating this time. How does maybe the influence of, of one storm affect another future storm in the next maybe three to five years? Hal, I think that's a great observation. You know, Rita came on the heels of Katrina, and so I think the, the rate of evacuation was influenced by the impacts from Katrina, and then Ike just a few years after Rita when the evacuation itself was so burdensome. And, and so many people said, I'm gonna ride this one out. So there's no question, uh, I, I think there is that memory from the previous yeah. storm. Yeah. I was here for Rita, and I, uh, the, the concept of evacuation planning uh, was very poorly developed. There was no, uh, no elected officials were telling people to stay home. In fact, they basically were getting the message that your houses are built poorly. It's, it's a Category 5 run for the hills. So there was, was, to me, it was no big surprise that everybody that could go went on that one. And one of the things I try to do when I'm talking to people that are in an evacuation zone is uh, it, almost everywhere on the coast, but certainly in our big urban areas, the decision to evacuate has to be made when the uncertainty about whether that impact will occur is very high. It's not a 50-50 proposition. So, for example, I would use for our section, if say, say you live here your whole lifetime, uh, well, your officials are going to tell you to evacuate for a hurricane four times. Three of them, you're gonna be mad at them because you went away and nothing happened to your house. The fourth one will tell you why you had to leave. I can't tell you which one will be the fourth one. Bill, I think it's, it's a great, great way to put it. And the Texas City Emergency Manager says something similar. And he says, you know, you, you may have an evacuation ordered. There's a threat, you leave, nothing happens, you come back. You know, the consequences are, are minimal. But if it's at one time when the surge comes up, the, the levee is overtopped and you don't leave, now your life is at risk. And so the consequences of that decision to stay are so much more uh, severe. And I suspect that would be very hard to convey in Southwest Florida where there simply are no examples. I'm sure there's been big hurricanes in the past, but the alligators didn't write down their story. No doubt about it. Yeah, I was trying to think of a, a previous big surge event on that coastline, and I, I really don't know when the last one was. But, uh, you know, now that there has been one, you know, it's going to be very important to, to let everyone on the coast know um, that that threat is there. Um, we've even had some of our counties, uh, for example, say, oh, the hurricanes always turn. So even post-Ike, if, if they weren't impacted by Ike, it's almost a negative lesson. You know, like they, they have some thought that the hurricanes don't come their way. So there, there is this uh, need for um, experience, but also a realization that, 
you know, in some sense, it's just luck, you know, where, where the storm does come it's in. It's amazing how quickly people take a, a, a few, a very small sample size and start to perceive a pattern there, right? When it's just right. randomness, you can start rolling a die and say, oh, you're always going to roll a low number just because of a few rolls, right? Right. If you drag that out over, over more rolls, all of a sudden it starts to even out. I think this happens with hurricanes. We see a couple hurricanes turn and people start perceiving, oh, that's, that's the way it always goes. There's a pattern there where maybe it was just random. Yeah, yeah no, I agree. And, and there's a, an image on social media now of all the Category 4 landfalls along the Gulf Coast in the last five years. And it's quite striking. I mean, you, you, it's, it's fairly evenly spaced, uh, but it kind of uh, makes the point that really anywhere along the coast uh, is, is at risk. I, I, people say they have a place that never gets hit. I'll pull up the entire, uh, from the historical database, all the tracks right. for the whole 150 years, and I ask them to find me a place on the coast that hadn't had a hurricane. Can't, <laughs> until you get up to Maine, just about. If you go back far enough in time, you start to see something that, that hits somewhere, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. it's just getting enough memory right. and enough DD yeah. history. So, so uh, kind of shifting gears a little bit, there was, there's been a lot of uh, 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 media reports about uh, maybe a misleading aspect of using the, uh, the cone graphic to display the forecast. And uh, uh, since you're active in the field on that, uh, what, what did you see relative to Ian and the cone? Because it seemed to work just fine on the last five years of major hits. People seem to understand it correctly then. Right. It, you know, the, I think the main thing is the impacts can and are felt outside the cone. Uh, people don't understand. A lot of people, even educated folks, think it's an impact cone. So if I'm in the cone, I'm at risk. If I'm outside, I'm not. Uh, now, in this case, even Fort Myers was generally in the cone, but the point the point here is that there's significant surge impacts, uh, especially outside the cone or rainfall. And so, um, so, so it is a messaging challenge. And the fact that the forecasts, the track forecasts are improving means it's a skinnier cone as well uh, than we had even with Rita, much skinnier. So, um, you know, people have to understand what the cone is and what it isn't. And, you know, we try to message the impacts above all, uh, but it is a challenge. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I just don't, I'm not quite sure though how, uh, if that's, that becomes a be all and end all of, of briefing on that. It's the first thing you see on any uh, media uh, piece on the, uh, on the hurricane and it's pr pretty much everywhere within the forecast system. That's the first thing people look at. Uh, maybe that's not the right way to go. You know, another, another point, point Bill, is one cone does not fit every situation. You could have a situation where the track forecast, where we have more confidence in it and perhaps that cone fits the uncertainty fairly well. Uh, but we have other situations, even with Ian, where we have a number of track possibilities, uh, perhaps over a wider area. So, um, you know, that's another shortcoming of the cone is, is it doesn't express the uncertainty in the track for any individual storm. Yeah, well, part of the problem with Ian, it was the, coming in at a very oblique angle, almost parallel to the coast, so a, a 10 to 20 degree deviation and on the direction the storm's moving has a huge difference on the landfall point, right. whereas when coming in normal the coast, the 10 or 20 degree difference two days out won't have that big an impact. Exactly, and, and you mentioned Charlie, it was the same situation there, just a slight angle shift and, and now you've got a very huge wind impact in a different area. 
And do you have the feeling that people perceive the, the huge, huge geographic, geographic extent, extent sometimes of a, a large wind field like, like Ian or, or a, a, a elongated you know storm surge, surge going down, down the coast, coast going quite far away from the the eye do you feel like people sometimes perceive the the geographic scope of these impacts or do you feel like they focus more on on the eye position as a direct strike you know, I think more on the eye position and the cone, uh, you know, and I always like to mention Carla around here, you know, Carla, the center tracked into Matagorda Bay, uh, but Bolivar was overwashed and there was tremendous flooding. So, and what's interesting at these, at these hurricane events, there, you, you get a lot of Carla veterans, you know, people that were here and, and they come to these because they know what hurricanes can do. So, you know, how to answer your question, I don't think it's really widely known uh, that you get impacts potentially well outside and to the right of the cone. And, and that, we keep hitting that in our, our outreach, but still it's a challenge. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I, uh, does, does that imply then that, that people aren't really looking at the surge graphics and the forecast advisories that go out? They have the graphics that show the, where the surge threat is and how far out the surge warnings are uh, beyond where the hurricane warnings or even I think it's part, part of that bill you know some, some of those search graphics aren't available till about 48 hours out so uh, by then you know people have to be moving you know from these areas uh, so I, I think it's partly they're not looking at that or they're not understanding what those numbers mean on the map you know it says four to six feet along the coast you know what does that mean for my house my neighborhood uh, so you know, we still have, it's getting it down to that personal level, like you mentioned earlier, Bill. What does that mean for me? Yeah, I think someday. The uh, fix to where these little things we carry in our pocket, the dingling and buzz will actually give you that information when the bandwidth gets to where it is and the, the data that feeds it is accurate enough. Uh, I, I kind of think another part of the problem is that we're in a business where being map savvy is critical to our survival <laughs> in a job. But people have found in, in the evacuation mode that most people aren't that good at looking at finding things on a map. Right, especially in the heat of battle, you know, where important decisions need to be made quickly. You know, interpreting this data, hearing all this information coming from so many sources. You know, including social media, media, neighbors talking. Uh, so, you know, it, I don't know how to fix that, but like you say, maybe some kind of uh, t trusted technology uh, can clarify that for folks. Yeah. Uh, how about preparedness? How do you feel the, uh, in the, your tenure here now, how do you feel the, the uh, approach in general of the population is towards being prepared. Has it gotten better or worse or stayed about the same? You know, I think it's a function of whether we've had a recent event. Uh, if we've had a hurricane, a lot of people think, gosh, you know, there were a lot of things I didn't know. And we see bigger attendance at the hurricane preparedness meetings. Uh, but when it's been a few years, uh, I think people get a little bit lax. and. Um, uh, so how to reach the most people with that information is also a challenge. You know, we do a lot of in-person hurricane events, and maybe we see the same 30 or 40 people every year. Uh, we've tried virtual versions of that, you know, with larger audiences. What, what you all are doing is outstanding. Uh, another way to reach people. So I think, you know, trying different ways to reach people is important. So we've still got a lot of work to do. Well, Dan, thanks for being with us, and Hal. Uh, glad you got back from Southwest Florida in one piece, and uh, folks, we'll be seeing you down the road. 
make USAA insurance for renters who make the most of their space and money. That's why we make it easy to cover the stuff you love for as little as 33 cents a day. USAA, what you're made of, we're made for. Beach lovers know it. Fishermen and water lovers know it. Little kids and big kids know it. Sandcastle builders, free spirits, and adventure seekers know it. Everyone who's ever been here knows it. South Padre Island is so fun, so perfect, and most of all, so Padre. Plan your escape at SoPadre.com. Welcome back, everybody. Um, really pleased to have our next uh, guest uh, from Lake Charles, Louisiana, and I think we'll switch gears and talk a little bit about the uh, one of the aspects of hurricanes that a lot of people uh, who haven't been in one uh, are maybe not aware of is just how long does it take to recover from one? Uh, you guys got pounded with Laura and Delta a couple of years ago. How, how are things uh, coming along out there as far as the recovery? It's, it's coming along, uh, but there's still a lot of work to do. Um, even our only skyscraper in the city of Lake Charles is still in bad shape. Uh, was that the Capital the One Tower? Yeah. Wow. It takes years. After a big event, it takes years to get back uh, to normal. And you still see houses with tarp on them all over the place, uh, siding still ripped off. I still have to get some siding work done on my house. But right after the event, so many people need contractors, there's just not enough of them to go around, so it takes a while. Yeah, and it's, it's in the middle of the pandemic, pandemic you have supply supplies. side issues of getting right. the. Uh, supply chain issues of getting the material and whatnot. And then having to go back and forth with your insurance company takes a long time too. Uh, so a lot of people had to go through some really bad stuff with insurance. So it, it, took, it takes a while. Wow. Uh, so now that you've had two years to digest those two hurricanes, they're very different. To me, it was a very different scenario than what we had in, in Florida. They, both of them seem to be uh, track-wise, uh, very tightly well forecast, much better than what you would expect even two days out. What, what's the length of lead time you need in, in your area of responsibility to pull the plug? To pull the plug, we need a little over 48 hours. And so we had that. We, we, That's great. The only, the only issue was, like you said, you had the pandemic going on with Laura. So they were, it was a little reluctant. Yeah, because they didn't want to have to open shelters and have everybody in that one location. So yeah, anxiety-ridden season for the decision makers. The uh, uh, 48 hours, and uh, uh, I would assume that you're much less densely developed than Southwest Florida. I seem to remember they were talking 72 hours to pull a clearance over there. Uh, that they would have had to make that decision right about the time the storm became a tropical storm. And right. I just I don't see. Uh, had a FEMA one, uh, one year when I was over there, or maybe it was the Florida State Emergency Manager at a meeting, basically said, that's too far out. You need to figure out a, a quicker way to do this. You're just not, you're not gonna be able to make that decision with that much uncertainty. And I think we saw some evidence of that going on with that. Did you have, other than the pandemic, did you have any problem making the decisions to evacuate in, in those storms? No, not, with, not, not during those storms. Uh, again, the pandemic was the biggest sticking factor. Uh, the 
but like you said, the, the, the track was really good, but it was still, there were some, you know, minor shifts going on uh, in the forecast, and the track actually went from about three days out, it was forecast to go 20 miles to the west, which would have been much worse for Lake Charles, the surge part. And that's what, that's why the National Weather Service Office evacuated, because we are in the surge zone. Yeah, remember when the surge missed us, but we still got the wind damage. Yeah, I remember your radar being torn to pieces. That's a lot of wind. Uh, how long did it take to get the radar back? It took, uh, we got it back in January or February of the next year. And so your winds probably exceeded that. Oh, yeah, they definitely exceeded. Wow. It's a tremendous amount of wind. So that one's up. up pretty high, so it probably wasn't large debris going up that high. And that's right. Not that much. Well, even the day before landfall, uh, well, two days before, the one of the one of our technicians came out. And we were talking. He's like, "Yeah, the dome's gone." So we we kind of already knew it by that point. Yeah, it's not the first one to disappear. Right. Maria took out San Juan and the an AD in Taiwan that went in a typhoon. So they know what happens to them. Um, uh, uh, tell me about the, the loss of life uh, that we call indirect loss of life uh, after the, uh, the storm with the re recovery period on Absolutely. that. So we, we had a lot of uh, uh, carbon dioxide poisons with the generators. Uh, for some reason, even we do a big campaign about it after every storm, like even before the season starts, we even talk about it. But people still really don't understand how to use gen portable generators. Yeah, that's sad. Yeah. Also, after uh, Laura, we had a lot of loss of life from heat because the heat got really bad, and there was no electricity for about a month in a lot of places. So. Jonathan, I always feel like South Louisiana is usually about as well prepared as anywhere for hurricanes. I remember driving around the day before Hurricane Delta hit. This was about six weeks after Hurricane Laura, and just thinking, man, these poor people, there were still piles of debris everywhere. I mean, you just, you couldn't clean up from a Cat 4 hurricane in just a couple weeks. So there were still piles of debris. I think even in your property, didn't Delta pick up Laura debris and, and you know, break some windows and things like that. Yes. So um, what did you learn from having back-to-back -back hurricane strikes six weeks apart, a Cat 4 and a Cat 2? I mean, how, how can, how is it possible to prepare for that second storm when you're still recovering from the first one? Yeah, it, it, it is a challenge because, like you said, we have debris piles everywhere. Uh, at first, they were telling us to place the debris in one place, and then here comes Delta with possibility a lot of rain. And so they said, get everything out of the ditch and try to secure it the best you can. But it's very difficult. To, uh, the piles of debris are so large, it's very difficult to secure it. So. I did, I tried my best, but it was just more of as a warm fuzzy, really, because yeah. that, that stuff's going to blow around. I had a shattered vehicle window, right? That's right. And that was Delta blowing Laura debris. That's right. It's crazy. It's hard to, hard to know how to handle that. Yeah. Yeah, so it's such a different scenario than, than what happened in Florida. I mean, you've had uh, uh, Gustav, uh, Rita, uh, Ike. Delta and Laura, all in a 20-year or less period, uh, uh, 
how are the people holding up on that or do they have some, something similar to a PTSD whenever there's a blob in the Gulf that yes. might come your way? Absolutely, there is a lot of PTSD. Um, so for, for a long time after Laura, uh, you know, you'd just go, go to like town hall meetings or meetings with elected officials and everybody was just worn out. It, would, it, will, it will drain you down, so yeah. Did you see a lot of people to even say like move to, to leave the region things like that especially in Cameron Parish there's hardly anybody going back to where the surge just wiped it out and they really took two direct hits from Delta and Laura yeah so yeah so they they the TV news uh, they showed people down there at their old property and saying can't do it anymore that's the thing I think people can recover maybe from one storm but once you get to two three four I mean, really, with Rita, Ike, Laura, and Delta, it's really four big hits in 20 years. And, and even even with Laura, Surge took out some houses that made it through. Uh, oh, the what was the name of the storm escaping me? The last big one in the 50s. Uh, Audrey. Audrey. Yes, thank yeah. you. Yeah, I was surprised that people, uh, you know, how, how people so stoically story. moved back there. That was such a traumatic event with Audrey and uh, wiped out everything and yet That's they right. moved back there. Well, like, like I said, said even even some houses that are very old that made it through Audrey didn't make it through Laura. So. Wow. And we were talking some of the storm surge coming, coming all the way up to the I-10 corridor, right? Yes. So like with Ike, I mean that's getting up towards like 25 miles inland. That's a lot of real estate. I guess South Louisiana is so flat these surges can go inland very far. That's right. Uh, so um, even for Ike, you know, it took several hours, but we could see water coming up uh, up the road towards our office. So, and it got across the field uh, uh, near the airport property, but it didn't it didn't get close. But that's why we knew with Laura, when it was going to have a much bigger surge, uh, we had to go. What's the uh, 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 slab elevation of the office slab there? Elevation of the office fourteen. Point seven five feet. Same as what the Houston Galveston was, and I got lucky and found uh, a kindred spirit in the county judge that says their EOC was across the street in a basement. Right. I kept saying, "This is insane! You, you got to be here for a hurricane, and you'll drown. You got to get out of there." And the so next thing, you're at a building. You've been involved with a lot of, I think, like high watermark analysis and mapping and things like that, both in Louisiana and then even over in Texas, right? And I, from what I've heard, there's a lot of collaboration with Harris County. A lot of different groups work together on this work, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it is now. For Hurricane Ike, um, for Hurricane Ike, it was, it was a lot of the USGS doing the Texas side, me and uh, LSU. Ag Center doing the work on the Louisiana side, so um, <clears throat> then you can make maps out of it all together once you combine it. So since uh, and then Harris County Flood Control saw what we were doing, they they brought me over there for three days so I could teach them how to do it. And now they've got gold standard equipment. They could do they could do now in two or three days what would take me two weeks to do now. Well, I think they deploy teams. Weren't they even going over to Florida they for how okay. They did go over the Tampa area, or Tampa office, and go down to Fort Myers for, uh, for Ian.
Jonathan, speaking about Tampa, you were kind of set to help provide support for the Tampa office if they got a direct hit, right? Yeah, so the way our backup system works, uh, during a hurricane, other offices on that would normally back them up are also in the path. So a lot of the Texas offices uh, and Louisiana offices had to provide that backup support further to the east. And uh, Houston Galveston did have to back up Tallahassee there for a little bit, but that was because of their communications outage. But yeah, we were sitting there, we were hot and ready to to take over for them in case that they went down. Like like for us, Brownsville, Brownsville and Houston, well, mainly Brownsville at first, took over for our operations when we left Lake Charles. You mean during Hurricane Laura? Laura. Yes. Okay. That's an improvement. We, we, we were, were doing, doing we were you for Rita when your power went out. Was the communication was still shaky because of Katrina and it went out very quick, so pretty much had to have the whole staff one being Lake Charles and one being Houston, because we were our, our eastern counties were getting yeah. hit hard. And now we we also can break it up too. So I think eventually uh, Brownsville was doing part of our forecast. Galveston, uh, Houston, Galveston did some. Tampa even did some of our aviation forecast. And uh, we'd swap it back and forth because we were down for so long. People, I mean, people just get burned out and tired trying to do two forecasts. So they, they would rotate it out a little bit. You mean another office, they're doing their home forecast and then they're picking up your forecast That's right. when you're... So I see at some point it's maybe even relieving them. That's right. Yeah. Actually, the landfall part's pretty easy because if there's a storm back in Florida... Generally speaking, the weather's fairly benign over in the West Gulf, so right. those offices can pick it up. Uh, anything different you're doing as far as your messaging or preparedness from the storms you've had recently? Uh, well, for us, you know, I think we try to push the hurricane threat and impact graphics more, more, more now than ever before. Uh, because uh, if you follow that information and guidance with those hurricane threat impact graphics, you're going you're gonna to take action, or you should be able to take action you need to protect your life and property. Yeah, I, I really like them. I just... I never see them show up on the air. I we, just we try to make it front page and center. If, like, if, if we're in the middle of a storm, it's going to be right there on the front page. First thing you yeah. see. And Jonathan, those break down the hurricane impacts into wind, surge, rainfall, flooding, and tornadoes. And then they'll tie some action to those as well, like actions people yeah, can take. Tell you what prepare for. Yep. It seems very applied. And, and again, focused on the impacts. Like we were saying before, sometimes maybe getting away from looking at where's the eye going to saying what are yeah, the impacts. Exactly, because like you were talking about earlier, that people focus on that forecast track way too much. And so we gotta get, we gotta get rid of that mindset a little bit. Because, I mean, it's okay to look at the forecast, but that's probably the last thing you need to be looking at way down at the bottom. You need to look at, all right, what is my, what is my surge risk here? Gonna be with this event. What is my wind threat? What is my rainfall threat? So, um, and going back to looking at those threats, it, you have to know your own personal risk too. It takes you to start it up. You can't depend on anybody else to do that for you. So, like I told you earlier, you are your own first responder in a big situation. So you need to know your risk. What is your risk from storm surge flooding? What is your risk from rainfall flooding? What is your risk from winds? 
So think about those things before the storm ever hits. And if you need help, your local National Weather Service will definitely help you or your local county emergency manager. That's what they're there for. To know we got to lead the horses to water. The the last survey I saw that was one of these Mason Dixon type polls. Uh, the people that responded to it, it was less than half of the people did anything preseason to prepare. And and the, when the forecast shows up on the map, is a little bit late for trying to figure out. I mean, I don't know how people would figure out what their wind risk is from a from a a structural point of view, unless they're, of course, in a mobile home, their wind risk is great no matter what's coming in. But for everything else, it's it's tricky. You don't know your building codes, but generally, right. you can you can get up in your attic and look, see what kind of what kind of construction was the roof made out of and stuff. But yeah, it's it is tricky sometimes. Yeah. Uh, do you have any idea? Any any thoughts on how you might crack that lack of preparedness short of going through a bunch of hurricanes like your people have done? <laughs> I think it's just, you know, um, I, I don't know how to crack that coup. Because if people don't take responsibility for their own family themselves, uh, who's going to do it? Yeah, I keep coming back to that I think. We get to critiquing all the products that go out there to explain all this. If you haven't thought through that, it's just, it's might be mind boggling to try to figure out yeah, from everything that's out so, there. So if you think about all this before the storm, when you get the forecast, you know, like, hey, here it comes, this is it, you know what to do, you know, a lot faster. Johnson, I've noticed a lot of people use past storms to inter interpret a future storm. So here we're recording this in Galveston, Texas, where the eye of Hurricane Ike came right over us. A lot of people interpret if the eye goes over you, that's a worst case scenario. But a lot of us that have spent time in the field know if Ike had made landfall, say, 10 or 15 miles down the coast, it would have been actually much worse here. Absolutely. So people might think, okay, that was, that was the worst case scenario. We had the eye go over us, but actually it was not the worst case scenario. These are complex things. They, they get into sociology and how people perceive things, but when we communicate with people, how can we help people understand that the eye going over you is maybe not the worst case scenario. It, it's worse if, you're, if it's offset and you're getting those constant onshore winds and the big surge. Again, that's a, that's a tough one. How how do how do we do that? Uh, you know, just keep just keep doing what we're doing. Uh, I don't. It's a tough one. How I re I really don't know. Um, people, most people by now should know that the right side of the storm is always going to be the worst side. <laughs> it was, it was, I was just in the Hurricane Ian. The eye, I was not trying to be in the eye. I was actually trying to be in the surge zone. Nonetheless, the eye came right over our position. And it was amazing. I mean, we're, it's, we were talking about this in a recent National Tropical Weather Conference, how, how fine it is. If you just move that track a few miles, you change the whole surge pattern. And when we were, we didn't see any surge. We had a Cat 4 landfall. The eye came right over us. But just a couple miles away, massive catastrophic surge. So, I mean, hopefully, I, I think the work that we're doing here, the communication we're doing, the field work, these, these cameras that are out there, I think if people want the education, hopefully they can start to see, wow, there's not much geographic difference between a place that doesn't get a huge surge and a place that gets a catastrophic That's surge. Right. And, and I'm glad you brought that up. So people have to be able to visualize what, what that amount of water looks like. I'm glad these cameras are getting out there in the field now where people can actually see, hey, this, this is what storm surge can really do. So that's a good point.
It's outside of our frame of reference, you know, and when, even if you hear nine feet of water, nine feet of storm surge, what's, what's familiar? I mean, maybe the deep end of a swimming pool, right? But that's, just, that's still water. I mean, we're seeing in some of these cameras just huge waves coming in, the water's flowing across the landscape like a raging river. It's, right. it's not like the deep end of a swimming pool. Well, uh, after Hurricane Ike, we went out uh, with the TV station and took shots of uh, landmarks people could recognize, and then we inundated it uh, on a graphically and show them what what it, it took all, all day long to do, but you know, I thought it was very important. Superimpose those water levels on yes. a landmark that they're familiar with. That's, That's right. a great idea. It's a visual, then. That's a visual, and so we did the Civic Center in downtown Lake Charles and the, the South Cameron High School uh, in in Cameron Parish, where we were talking about earlier, and several other sites that people would know. Yeah, and how do people uh, react to them when? You it really worked good it, for them? It good. It did. And so the TV station actually went ahead and played it on their uh, hurricane special for the start of the next season. Jonathan, that gets me thinking. Really unique use of creative, innovative graphics, but also maybe for broadcast meteorologists in the field, find a, a well-known landmark to say, hey, the water's going to be up higher than my head if, if this forecast verifies. Maybe something to get people to drive that message home. Yeah. You have to get one or two each, each city or... Uh, 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 part of the county and whatnot that are vulnerable that you could yeah. uh, create that. That yeah, sounds it's, great. It's is well known to the community. That's that's the key. Uh, one of the things that I said uh, we've always struggled with uh, in this area is what the combined effects of very heavy rain and then the storm surge would be on the rivers and streams. You being a hydrologist uh, now have some practical experience. What have you learned on that? Um, I, compound flooding uh, is, is being studied very hard right now. So, but what I've seen from the data where we have velocity measurements along with the stage height and all that, the, it depends on what the biggest driver is. Is it the surge or is it the, the rainfall? Because a lot of times um, for, for Hurricane Ike, you can see the velocity change in the river way upstream. So you knew the surge was going inland. Um, if, like in the Mississippi, if the Mississippi River is high, you don't get a surge up the Mississippi River. But if it's in the low territory, it doesn't matter what kind of surge it is, you can get it all the way up north of Baton Rouge. Wow. So. It's a good thing you didn't have one this year. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, uh, hope uh, recovery keeps working good for you guys over there and uh, that we don't have to talk to you about a live hurricane anytime soon. We made USAA insurance for members like Kate, a former Army medic made of the flexibility to handle whatever Monday has in store and tackle four things at once. So when her car got hit, she didn't worry. She simply filed a claim on her USAA app and said, I've got this. USAA Insurance has made the way Kate needs it. Easy. She can even pick her payment plan, so it's easy on her budget and her life. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. USAA. Blackmagic Design's ATEM Mini line of line production switchers makes it easy to create professional broadcast quality programs and multi-camera productions and stream them live to YouTube, Facebook, and more, or present live via Zoom and Skype. 
Simply connect the A10 Mini and switch live up to eight high-quality video camera inputs for dramatically better quality images. All A10 Mini models have USB that works like a webcam for use with any streaming software, while the A10 Mini Pro and the A10 Mini Extreme models add direct live streaming and recording to USB discs. A10 Mini models start at $295. For more information, visit blackmagicdesign.com. Hi, everybody, again. Um, uh, we've got uh, our two guests here, Dan Riley from the Houston Galveston office and John Brazell from Lake Charles. And we've been talking about uh, a lot of things about preparedness and, and what works and what doesn't work, uh, about getting people to do the right actions. And uh, uh, I think some of the uh, things that we uh, really struggle with is how are we any ideas on how we might better educate people on the storm surge threat that's even though we've made a major effort over the last decade it seems like we still have work to do there you know I think working, working with, with the broadcast, broadcast media in a, in a unified way uh, we have integrated warning team meetings where we bring everyone together and you know perhaps that could be a point of emphasis uh, for those coastal communities uh, to, to really hit home, you know, who is in a surge zone, who really has to get out of the way, uh, and by contrast, who is not in a surge zone and maybe could ride out the storm. I, I can't really add much to that other than, you know, work with them on, you know, finding places that people recognize and show the water covering those areas. Uh, one thing we haven't really talked about yet uh, is changes uh, in like building codes and land use after a storm. Have you seen uh, uh, improved building code or land use policies yet in, in your area as a result of the storms? So we, we do, do see improved building codes. codes. Uh, land, land use policies are a little different. different. They're, 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 they seem slower to enact because that comes from the local level instead of the state level more. So um, probably still stuck on the 100 year event as a driver, which is way too risky in my opinion. Well, it's way too risky and way outdated from what we had before. Now, the, with the new rainfall statistics from NOAA Atlas 14, uh, there's gonna, the new maps are going to show a lot more flooding. And like I was telling Hal a while ago, um, INFORM, I-N-F-R-M, has high-resolution maps based on the new rainfall data as well. So you can go look at it right now. Instead of having to rely on your, your flood, uh, your FEMA flood insurance rate maps, which is where most people usually got their flood risk information. I don't even use those anymore. I, don't, I agree. I don't I'll find them very useful They're for, not, for my own personal uses when people ask me. So I'm glad to hear there is something out there. I've basically been uh, telling people from that rainfall data that uh, the, the recent data added into it, it seems like uh, what was a hundred year event and the old data uh, finished in the 1960s is more like a 50 year event in our area now. That's incredible. Yeah. Now, it's not a one for one on flooding so the, the, the flood return frequency I guess will be it'll, it'll be less again but not maybe not the same as the rain. Is that right? Yes. Uh, so and also with these maps you uh, you also get more information like with the old FEMA maps they had to model just one or two channels. And so the, it would be very, it wouldn't capture all the, the risk information. So 
Now it just takes the 100-year data, the 500-year data, drops it into the model, and shows everything that floods at, at that level. So it, this is way better improvement and than what we have. That is now available, not all across the country, but just for REMA Region 6. That's excellent. That's, that's good to know. I had a question for Dan. I was just in Florida interacting with a lot of people, and I realized there's a lot of transplants and a lot of new people, and I think that's true in Texas too, right? We have right. a lot of people that have moved here from other states, and maybe they've never even been here for a storm like Ike or Rita or these other storms. Do you encounter, encounter that, that in your education, education and outreach? A lot of new people, people that maybe have never even been through a hurricane before? Uh, we do. Many, Many of the people, people are new, and you know, they say you know, we're, we're new to Galveston, for example. You know, we, we have uh, safety workbooks, things can, checklists. It's like that, hurricane guides, uh, where they can kind of get up to speed on, you know, evacuations here, uh, what to put in your kit, uh, things that they maybe haven't considered. So, so that is a, a certain group of people that are new, that are hungry for information. And then will you have, like, outreach events, especially in the spring, like, you know, pre-hurricane season, will there be events where people can come either in, in Texas or over in Louisiana as well? Yeah, I know both of our offices do a lot of hurricane town meetings. Uh, there was one right here in Galveston. Uh, typically there are tables, booths, a lot of the city departments are there as well, emergency management, and just a wealth of information. Uh, we, we, we have a, a large one in Harris County, Houston as well. Uh, you mentioned Harris County Flood Control. They have a lot of great information they give out as well. All, all the, the major media outlets have their own hurricane special, and it's available online for people who can't watch it at the Times and, uh, and things like that. Right. The, the, the stations all, like you say, Bill, have hurricane specials. Uh, so a lot of good information for, for new, new and uh, experienced folks. Have any of the AWS offices tried like a, a second engagement, say late July? I know a lot of times like April, May, there's a lot of events. And then typically climatologically, I mean, we, we've had big flood events like Tropical Storm Allison in June, but a lot of times the heart of the season is really August, September. Are there, like, even this year we saw this long, quiet period, and all of a sudden, late September, here's a major hurricane coming into the Gulf. You know, are there any ways that we can stay engaged kind of through a long hurricane season, especially if it's, if it's quiet and, you know, we get that ramp up usually in August or September? How are ways to keep people engaged through, through the season? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Right now, uh, it's mostly, I'd say, April, May, and early June where these events occur. But maybe through social media, uh, maybe even through some online uh, things, we can remind people, hey, you know, we're just getting into the meat of the season now. Uh, so, yeah, that's a great suggestion. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty much driven by the local communities. That, uh, we encourage them to have schedule these, but they're the ones that set it up. And the feedback I got when I was, was doing what you're doing is, is uh, uh, this, uh, when you get past the end of the school year, the break with all the vacations and whatnot, both in their staff and the public they're trying to reach, uh, makes it complicated. On the other hand, Miami-Dade County didn't do their hurricane meeting until July. Oh, really? The big convention center thing, yeah. Expo. Now, there are years like 2020 where we have actual storm threats, you know, through the season. So that's the type of situation, unlike this year, where um, that you don't really have that prolonged quiet period. So. Yeah, like Hurricane yeah. Hannah was in South Texas in July. In July, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are those are good times to uh, actually reiterate some of the stuff you would use in your talks. There's a hurricane going on. It's a, people are paying attention to it. If it's approaching landfall, even if it's not in your area, get those kind of messages up front and personal to people to remind them of it. 
Yeah, exactly. Jonathan, Jonathan you shared before about how resiliency and preparedness has to be personal. You even shared an example for you personally about looking at real estate. There was a house that you really wanted to buy. It was a great deal, but flood risk really affected that decision. Could you share a little bit about that? I thought that inter that's interesting because this isn't just a message for the public. This is a message that you yourself follow in your life. Yeah, so moving from San Angelo to Lake Charles, um, you know, searching around for a house like everybody does when they move. And so, uh, you know, I, I looked for the, the rainfall flood risk first, and then I was looking for this, is there a st storm surge risk? Because I knew we were in the surge zone too. So, <clears throat> yeah, I, I found a really nice house. I really wanted it. I really wanted it bad. But it was, it was flat as a pancake where it was located. Uh, no, no elevation off the ground, ground so it was built that grade. Uh, and, and then, for, for some reason, it was built below the, like the main highway, too, on there. And I'm like, no, this is not, this is not going to work. But the house was beautiful, had a nice property. Big. I love that story, though, because it's a beautiful house. It seemed like maybe in your budget, uh, attainable, but you let flood risk say, no, I'm not going to, this is too risky. Yeah, so now, now I live where I do now because that, but I'm, like, you've been to my house before, I'm elevated up above the street now quite a bit. So instead of being at 14 and a half at the office, I'm at 15. So. Well, part of the problem on the Gulf Coast, we get so many stretches of beautiful weather that we could just say, oh, it's like today, it's sunny and 80 degrees, like it is most of the year, really nice, beautiful weather. We can let our guard down and say, oh, a flood will never happen. It sounds like you were like, no, you know there's a flood risk. You don't want to be on really low ground. So you let that affect your personal decision making. What happened here was after Tropical Storm Claudette in 1979, uh, so many houses got flooded that were just like the one you described, great even with the ground or maybe a street even elevated above it. And uh, new development, it's three feet above street grade. The streets are the, the first line of defense is a floodway for the runoff. But the, that three feet, in the old days, the houses were pier and beam, and, and guess how high they were above the ground? Three feet. <laughs> so we're back to where we were. Yeah. See what? I wonder what else we could hit there. Yeah. So, um, uh, what are your last thoughts moving forward? If you were to, if you were to meet someone at a at a barbecue and you had 30 seconds to give them uh, one message to consider with preparedness, what would that message be, Dan? What about you? Well, I mean, circling back to how we communicate this, I think all the cameras, the visuals of surge and the high-speed flow that you mentioned, you know, getting people to see what it looks like. You know, it's not like a swimming pool, like you said. So, trying to leverage all the visualizations out there. Um, in our public outreach and then reach a larger number of people, um, you know, working with the TV stations, uh, especially with their hurricane specials. But it seems like every year there are more cameras out there. It, it, it right. really hit me with Ian, like the coverage goes up and up every, every year. Well, well, gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us. We've used our allotted time. Hopefully we have a quiet end of the season and a quiet year next year. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Sure.